Thank you for listening to this recording. We are thinking about God's grace in law, and this is our second part following on from last week. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, we want to understand your word well, because we want to think right thoughts about you, so that we live well in your world and we bring you the glory that's due to your name. This is more than an academic exercise. We want to know you, be changed by you, love you more because you are most worthy. So please give us eyes to see and hearts to respond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the pig, though it has a split hoof completely divided, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you, Leviticus 11.7. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Celebrate the Feast of Harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field. Exodus 23, 14 to 16, selected parts. How are you doing at keeping those laws? Are you keeping those laws? I assume all of us have failed to observe those three festivals every year. And I also suspect, unless you're a vegetarian, that you have eaten pork at some point in your life. It's worth saying as well that if you are a vegetarian, the reason why you have kept the command of Leviticus 11.7 is probably much more to do with the fact that you're a vegetarian and not very much to do with trying to keep that part of God's law. So you and I have all, I assume, broken those laws and keep breaking them. Why? Why are you breaking God's laws? Does it not bother you that you are breaking them? God has spoken. He's given instructions to his people. If you're part of God's people and you're going to choose not to obey something God has said, then, then why are you OK with that? Surely there's got to be a really good reason not to follow what he said. And that's what we're thinking about tonight. Last time we saw that we are not under the law, yet Christians are to uphold the law. And I found this quote, which I think is really helpful, following on from last week. The law is not a covenant of works for the believer. It nevertheless functions as a rule of life. I think that really sums up really quite well. What we were thinking about last time. It's not a covenant of works for a believer, the law. It nevertheless functions as a rule of life. So we're not under the law to earn salvation, but the law which condemns us leads us to Christ. It was given so we would come to Christ. It was given so we would know what sin is. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, we will now be able to be taught by the law how not to sin. So the law functions as a rule of life. It teaches us how not to sin. 
So why is it then that we do not observe those festivals and why do we eat pork? Why do we not obey those parts of the law? Well, let me approach this with you from a slightly different angle. In Isaiah 31, verse 33, Isaiah said this, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, it's interesting that the author of Hebrews quotes those verses from the book of Isaiah. And, and basically, that, that's the situation. That this, these words from Isaiah are the summary of the situation that we're in now. We are part of that new covenant that God has made, which means we now live at a time where Jesus puts his law in our minds and writes them on our hearts. So the law is not some external code anymore, an, an external list, but an internal reality through the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We are so privileged. We are a new creation. God lives, dwells within us, and God does the miraculous by his truth. He sanctifies us. He is at work in our hearts, renewing our minds, changing us from the inside as we fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the one that's the life giver. He is the one that kept the law on our behalf, and his, his power is at work in all his followers. Now, I'm sure we all know that we can use words in different ways. I recently just heard an illustration of the word massacre. You know, if, if you saw the word massacre in a newspaper, it can mean whole, a whole series of different things. On the front page, sadly, it might mean that some people have been killed. On the back pages, the sports pages, it means somebody's won by a tremendous um, you know, amount of runs or, or goals or whatever. And if it's in the business section, somebody's lost a lot of money as the share price has been massacred. So same word, but just used in different ways. And the word, there's a lot of confusion about law in the Bible because the word law can be used in a variety of ways. Why not, if you want, for a few moments, pause this recording and just think about the different ways in which the Bible uses the word law. Just pause the recording and think about that for a few moments. Okay, so hopefully you've paused recording and thought about the way that the Bible uses the word law. I've just done a few examples. You may have got a lot more than this. Um, but a law can be a principle or rule of the way things are. So Romans 7.21, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So that's kind of a principle, um, a rule of life, something that happens. Um, or the law can be used to refer to the whole of the Old Testament, Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. And, and those verses come after a section where Paul has quoted Psalms and the prophets. So it seems like he's, he's referring to the whole Old Testament at that point. The law can also be used to refer to part of the Old Testament. So Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there, there's a distinction between the prophets and the law, the rest of the Old Testament. It can be used to refer to the books of Moses, although maybe that's what was referred to in Matthew 5, 17. 
This is Luke 24, 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So it would seem here that Jesus is referring to the first five books of the Bible as the law. Or the law can be used to simply refer to the commands of God. So this is Matthew 22, 35 and 36. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Um, from the context, it would seem um, that this is describing, so it's a Pharisee who's an expert in the law, and it would seem that that is referring to um, an expert in the application of the commands of God rather than perhaps the first five books in the Bible. And we could go on, I'm sure we could go on, we may have thought of different things. So here's the, the big question. When Isaiah was writing, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What did God mean by that as he inspired that to be written? Uh, how did the first readers understand it? Well, let me, and then, and then in turn, when it's quoted by the author of Hebrews, how did the author of Hebrews intend, it, intend for it to be understood? Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson to you, who is very helpful on this. Since the author of Hebrews teaches the ceremonial parts of the old covenant have been fulfilled in Christ, he could not have meant them. And since Hebrews was written to those who now have no lasting city and therefore no longer see themselves as citizens of a state with its capital in Jerusalem, they are no longer a people governed by the civil regulations intended for life in the land. So I wonder if you understand what Sinclair Ferguson means by that. He said the author of Hebrews, when he is speaking about God's law being written on people's hearts, can't be referring to the ceremonial aspect, so all to do with the tabernacle and the temple and the priest garments and the sacrifices, nor could he be referring to the civil rules that were in place to govern Israel as a nation, those, those things have passed away. Now, although that's the case, that doesn't mean we can ignore those aspects of the law. They are still part of the whole counsel of God. They are still part of God's word, the scriptures that are useful for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we can still look at those parts of the Bible and we can learn principles. We can learn things about our amazing God and the sort of people he wants us to be. And we'll think about that a little bit you know, later on in a few moments. But it's clear that those parts of the law are not written on the hearts of, of a believer. And this is backed up by other things that are said in the New Testament. Jesus himself declared all food clean in Mark 7, 19. Or Paul rebukes the church at Galatia because they were observing particular Special days and festivals, so Galatians 4, 10 and 11 says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So it's clear that uh, Paul and Jesus reinforce that those parts of the law um, are, are no longer binding. They're not written on a believer's heart. So what's left? Well, the Ten Commandments which are not laws specifically governing the nation of Israel, nor are they worship regulations. Instead, they are laws which reflect God's character. Now, there are some Christians who take different views on, on this. 
and some disagree with this um, and they state that such a distinction between different parts of the law are not made in the Old Testament. So they say there's, there's no reference in the Old Testament that there is a civil ceremonial and a moral part of the law. However, in answer to this, it's worth mentioning, and I've already alluded to it, that the Ten Commandments show God's character. That is not something that is fulfilled. It's not something that comes to an end or comes to a completion. God is enduring and eternal. He doesn't change. He desires his children to be like him. Secondly, the Old Testament does make a distinction between the Ten Commandments or moral law in several ways. So only the Ten Commandments out of all the laws were written by God. The Ten Commandments were written on stone. None of the other commands were. Being written on stone makes them seem pretty permanent. And only the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Also, do you remember when Jesus was asked that question about the most important commandment in the law? Well, this was Jesus' answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And that really is a summary, isn't it, of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments give direction to what it looks like to love God. First four commands that are vertical. And then the next six commands show what it looks like to love your neighbour with those horizontal commands. Now, I hope that hasn't been too confusing, but has added to our understanding as to why we can eat a bacon sandwich and why we don't celebrate particular festivals. But having said all that, just for a few moments, I would like to give an example about part of the law, which isn't part that um, that's written on our hearts. It's been fulfilled because it's to do with the nation of Israel and governing them as a nation, it's um, not something that we are called to obey anymore, but still how we can learn from the passage. So just turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. A few months ago, I was going through Deuteronomy as part of my quiet time, and I came to Deuteronomy 15, and this is what I read. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, and we'll just go down to verse 6 to start with, and I'll make a couple of comments and then read a bit further. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it should be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. So this passage is pretty straightforward. There is instructions that every seven years the Israelites are to release any other fellow Israelite that owes them money from that debt. And that was the law. That was a law for the nation of Israel. And I can imagine some Israelites thinking as they hear this law, well, I'm not going to lend anybody any money in year six and a half. If I'm, if I'm lending somebody some money, I'm going to do it in year one. So there's plenty of time to repay it before that cancellation thing happens. 
Or maybe some Israelites may have been thinking, oh, it's getting near to year seven. I'm going to go and start borrowing money off everybody and then I'll get rich. But let's keep reading. Verse seven. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted towards your poor brother. Rather, be open handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. We'll leave it there. We could You could keep reading to verse 11, but we will read it there. So do you see, hopefully this helps us to explore a little bit more what God's intention is behind the law. So the whole point is that God is a generous God who generously provides for his people and his people, since they are to be like him because they're his treasured possession that are going to put him on display to the rest of the world, the other nations, they are to reflect him. So they are to be the same. God is a generous God. Giving to people is God's speciality. Aren't we glad about that? And so God's people are to be the same. Now, the law was put in place to reveal sin. It's very difficult to legislate that people have to have generous hearts. That's impossible. How do you define that? How do you know if someone's got a generous heart or not? But you can legislate a law that says every seven years you need to cancel debt. Now, when approaching this law, if a person's attitude is, well, God is a giver of harsh, restrictive rules, then they will do the minimum. They will be reluctant to give in year six. They will borrow a load of money, even though they might not need it in you know, a day to go before year seven, the cancellation happens. But people who understand that this is a good, good gift, this is the best way to live, the way for flourishing, they won't be necessarily concerned about the letter of the law, will they? They will keep the spirit of the law. They will just be generous people and they won't care if they're giving money on year six and a half or year one. That's the point. That's what the law is trying to legislate, people being generous. And so today, I'm sure we can see how we can learn from this law, even though this law is not written on our hearts, even though we don't have the cancellation of debts in year seven, we can see that actually God is a God who wants us to be generous. Some people today think we can ignore the law because we are saved by grace uh, and they will ignore even Deuteronomy 15 and think it's very restrictive and it's not something that applies anymore. But when we understand this is a good gift given by God, reflecting his good character, then we will stop and think even about things in, in Deuteronomy 15. And we will seek to obey the principle that's there. We can think about what it means to be generous and love our fellow Christians, which certainly is something that God writes on our hearts. I hope that example just helps um, seeing how we can even benefit from parts of the law which are not written on our hearts. So just as we close, a couple of questions for you to think about. Firstly, do you view the commands of God as restrictive or a good gift? Why? And then secondly, what would you say if somebody said to you, Christians don't need to worry about obeying God's word because we're saved by grace. How would you answer somebody who said that?
Thank you.